We'll be back in Luke chapter 14 today. We'd love to hear the sound of turning pages or flipping phones or whatever that looks like for you as we find our way to Luke chapter 14. As I'd love to have you follow along with me if you're able today. And I want to share with you a message that I've titled, Free Grace, Costly Discipleship. Free Grace, Costly Discipleship. Because what we're going to see is that Jesus so clearly puts these things together. When we hear the call of the gospel, we hear a call that is ultimately free. Something that Jesus has paid the entire penalty for. He's paid all the price that's needed. And yet his call for us to follow him is a costly call. It will cost you everything. So just to kind of collect our thoughts around this topic, I want to share with you a story that I heard about a good old country gal whose husband, whose name was Bubba, had just passed away. So you can imagine this new window is trying to make preparations for Bubba's funeral, and she called the local newspaper to inquire about publishing Bubba's obituary. Well, she was directed to the appropriate department, and she spoke with an editor for the newspaper, and she asked, how much does it cost to put an obituary in the paper? Well, the editor replied and said, the cost is $2 per word, and you know, usually the average obituary is around 200 words, so the average total cost would be around $400. Well, the widow said, let's just keep this simple. I want to print print an obituary for my husband, Bubba, and here it is. Bubba died. That should just be $4, right? Well, the newspaper editor was a little bit startled at first. She had never heard a request for such a short obituary. And so she kind of looked at her policies and she responded saying, I'm sorry for your loss, ma'am. But there's a seven-word minimum for obituaries that are to be published in our newspaper. Well, this widow was silent for another moment, and then the editor thought she heard something like a pencil kind of writing up against paper as the widow began to whisper slightly into the phone saying, three, four, five, six, seven. Finally, the widow said, okay then, here's what I'd like to print. Bubba died 2017 pickup truck for sale. (laughs) Counting the cost. It's an experience that we're all familiar with. Before we set out to build a house or before we buy a car, before we even publish an obituary, we usually want to know what we're getting ourselves into. Because knowing What we're getting ourselves into is an important facet of being able to succeed and ensure that we're able to follow through on the task that is rightfully ours. And we want to know what we're getting ourselves into, but sometimes that can be a complicated process because sometimes when we don't know what we're getting ourselves into, the details are intentionally hidden from us. Sometimes We're asked to sign long documents that contain a lot of fine print about hidden costs. I remember shortly after graduating college and taking on my first full-time job with my college degree, I I decided to make a purchase 
of a brand new pickup truck from a dealership down in Cary. Now, this is the only brand new vehicle that I've ever owned, and it's, I suspect that's the only brand new vehicle that I will ever own. But I was young, and I was naive, and I was excited to have a regular paycheck, and so I decided I was going to buy a new truck. And I remember sitting down at the dealership with this representative from the finance department there at the dealership, And I looked over the bill of sale and these numerous documents and this monthly payment that the dealer was offering to me. But the monthly payment and this amateurization schedule that they gave me simply didn't make sense to me. I I could see the interest rate. And if I kind of took that rate and then multiplied it out, as you might imagine, kind of added that amount on every month, that's not what that amateurization schedule look like that's not what those totals panned out to be and so I asked a lot of questions of the financial representative that I was dealing with I wanted him to explain his numbers to me but he could not apparently nobody else had ever asked him to explain those payments he looked at the same fine print that I was trying to figure out what on earth it meant and he couldn't explain it to me So he punched a few things into the calculator, and there were these awkward moments where his numbers weren't working out to what he expected them to be either. And then he began to sweat. And he said things like, it just doesn't work that way, but he couldn't explain to me how it did work. And so eventually, he had to go and speak to his manager. And when he came back, at a very high level, which I don't think either one of us still really understand, But at a very high level, he explained to me kind of the way things worked according to his manager. And therefore, I felt like we'd at least covered the bases where there's not a clerical error. And so we proceeded with that purchase. But counting the cost is a hard task when the costs are hidden away from you. And sometimes sneaky salesmen are all too happy for the details to be hidden away in the tiny little fine print. But the Lord Jesus is no sneaky salesman. He calls for those who want to be saved to come after him, to become his disciples. He offers them grace that is free, but he calls for them to respond to that grace with discipleship that costs them everything. And Jesus doesn't hide away the costs associated with following him. Even when they shock our socks off, he wants us to know the high costs associated with following him. And this is important for us to consider because sometimes we who are in the church are not as forthright as Jesus is regarding this topic. We invite individuals to come to church. We invite individuals to be saved. We tell them about the free grace that Jesus offers. But we hide away as though it's fine print what Jesus expects of individuals when they come to know him. And so we lead individuals to a gospel that gives them everything but costs them nothing. They think they can simply pray a prayer or sign a card or walk an aisle, but they give no further evidence that Jesus is the Lord of their lives. There's no discipleship which comes to characterize those lives. 
And so they end up with this hollow shell of what we could call nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. Which ultimately leaves them worse off than before they began. But if they were open to hearing God and His Word and hearing God's Son in the words that He speaks in this passage today, they would certainly know that Jesus doesn't hide the costs associated with coming to Him in the fine print. So let's look at this call to follow Jesus, this call to discipleship here together as we turn now to Luke chapter 14 beginning in verse 25. If you're able, I'd ask that you would stand that we might honor the reading of God's word together. Luke 14, beginning in 25. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it become seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here ends the reading of God's word. If you will please be seated. So much rich truth, so much challenging truth from Jesus in this passage that we're going to break this up over a couple of Sundays and we'll take a look at part one of this idea of free grace and costly discipleship here this morning. We'll pick up with part two next Sunday, Lord willing. But in these verses, Jesus does not withhold the fine print. With big, bold, shocking words, he beckons each of us to yield all that we are and all that we have to his control. And he says clearly with no hidden catches that those who are unwilling to yield everything to him and to follow him cannot be his disciples. In fact, that's the phrase that appears three times in this passage. This idea of not being able to be Jesus' disciples. Jesus lays out the cost of discipleship and he indicates that those who are unwilling to abide by these conditions cannot be his disciples. And so he ends his words in verse 26 with the phrase, cannot be my disciple. 
Likewise, at the end of verse 27, we find those same words, cannot be my disciple. And in verse 33, he says, none of you who can be my disciple, who does not. And then he gives another of those costs of discipleship. And we could easily summarize this passage under the title of how to know if you're not able to be a disciple of Jesus. Because that's obviously a major focus of what Jesus is saying here in these verses before us here today. But you you may be asking, what does that have to do with me anyways? Why would I want to be a disciple? Well, the first big idea that I want you to take hold of is this. Every true Christian is a disciple who follows Jesus and learns from him. And we must pause here to mention that there is no other way to be saved by Jesus other than to become a disciple of Jesus. The word disciple simply conveys the idea of someone who is committed to following and learning from the teaching of another individual. And all of those who were saved by Jesus in the Bible were disciples of Jesus. They all relinquished their former priorities and they yielded their lives to the master's command. And so it's important for us to note that discipleship is not just some like optional track of elite Christianity, this higher path that those who are more diligent, more dedicated are likely to take while others are just saved and become Christians without becoming disciples. No, it is those who have decided to follow Jesus in discipleship. Those who believing in who he is and what he has done have decided to yield their lives to him as Lord. These are the ones who have entered through the narrow door in order to be saved. These are the ones who will be welcomed into the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, this word disciple is the chief word that Jesus uses to describe those who were being saved. Just before he ascended into heaven, he gave the church these marching orders. He said, go therefore and make what? Disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the word used to describe those who are saved, this this word Christian that we tend to use so often doesn't even appear into the Bible in the Bible until the early church is up and running in this city called Antioch, a very critical church in the early life uh, of the church at large. But the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 11, that's where we read that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That is this group known as the disciples and the group known as the Christians were one and the same group. The Bible never gives us the idea that you can be a Christian without being a disciple of Jesus. So when we're talking about the high cost of discipleship, this high cost of following Jesus should be an interest to all of us from, because from a biblical standpoint, every true Christian is a disciple who follows Jesus and learns from him. Now, our experience with this world gives us a little bit of a different perspective, does it not? Because we live among swarms of people who say that they are Christians, 
But their lives give no evidence of this costly discipleship that Jesus describes for us here in Luke chapter 14. We have family members and we have neighbors and we have co-workers and we have friends. And yes, we have even fellow church members who say that they are Christians. But in the majority of the decisions they make about how to live their lives, they don't give a rip about what Jesus commands or compels them to do. And my friends, that's a dangerous place for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be. Because if we are not living out the costly call to follow Jesus and learn from him daily, then we have missed our mark. We have missed our marching orders. And though we may call ourselves Christians, though we may have signed the card or walked the aisle or raised the hand or taken the dip in the river or even joined the church, Jesus would have us know that nothing less than yielding up the high cost of discipleship will lead through the narrow door that leads to eternal life. That's the second big idea that I want you to understand here is that Jesus wants you to count the cost of discipleship. He wants you to count this cost. In the middle of describing the cost of discipleship here in this passage, Jesus gives a couple of small parables that are chained together that send this collective common message that Jesus ultimately wants us to count the cost of discipleship. He, He wants us to take time to consider what it will require of us and to, and to decide if those are requirements that we are willing to align our lives under. The first parable here in verses 30, 28 to 31 speaks of a man who wants to build a tower. Now, towers in this day could have been for a couple of purposes. They might have been tall, watch guard sort of towers to guard an individual's home or an individual's community. They could likewise be a tower that was to store grain. This kind of wealth, this overflow of of the product of, of crops and hard labor, which could then be used for months to come. But Jesus doesn't speak about the content of the tower. Jesus calls our attention to the importance of counting the cost when we undertake a project like that. And so he says, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? There would be tough consequences in this day and age, by the way. This was a society that was so based on your reputation, so based on your name and how clear you kept it from shame. There would be severe consequences. You can imagine, you're building a tower. I mean, that's not something that's going to be hidden away. Everyone is going to see if you fail to make it to the end of that project. It would be this raised up living testimony to your own failure. And so Jesus is saying, why would an individual in that sort of situation not count the costs? That's why he warns of the consequences of those who do not count the costs, saying, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Well, then Jesus moves to another sort of mini parable that describes the preparations required by kings when they are preparing to go into war. He gives this parable of the king who's preparing for, in fact, an overwhelming invasion. An invasion of, of a king who has twice as many men as himself. 
That's why we read in verses 31 and 32, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one who is coming against him with 20,000 men. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. Now, we'll dig into these parables a little bit more next Sunday, Lord willing. But for now, I just want to call you to remember that Jesus isn't concerned here with just telling builders how they ought to prepare for towers or telling kings how they ought to prepare for war. He's telling potential disciples how to prepare for following him. He's telling you how to prepare for following him. And the preparation that is needed is this. You must count the cost of discipleship. Discipleship is not something that you can enter into lightly. You can't commit your whole heart without a wholehearted resolve to do so. So count the cost of discipleship. Now as we talk about the high cost of discipleship that we must count, some of you might be a little bit confused. Perhaps you've heard me preach over and over again as I'll continue to preach about salvation that Jesus offers, which leads to eternal life, and that salvation is free. And that is true. There's nothing we could do in order to earn the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers to us. Jesus is not telling the crowds how to earn their own salvation by paying the cost for that salvation. Friends, he's already paid that cost. Jesus has died the death that we deserve. He's borne the wrath that was rightfully ours as sinners against the holy God. And shout it from the rooftops, salvation is free. But that does not change the reality that discipleship is costly and requires our submission to his will. Let me illustrate this for you with a a little kind of dreamy sort of scenario all right so just imagine that a wealthy executive like jeff bezos of amazon just comes knocking on your door one day in order to tell you that he's decided to give generously to someone that he does not know so he has decided to give you an all expense paid beachfront mansion on the beach in hawaii He says, don't worry about getting there. I've arranged for your airfare. I've arranged for all the moving expenses. The movers will come whenever you notify them. And we'll get all of your things there. I've got a car that's waiting for you there. I've arranged for all of your lifetime expenses for food and clothing and utilities to be taken care of here at this house. It's all there. It's all waiting for you because I want to show my kindness to a stranger. Now, if you've got an amazing offer and it was an authentic offer if you got an offer like that it would be totally free but that offer wouldn't be any good unless you took action to receive it you could plan for it you could brag about what had been extended to you you could dream about it but until you pack up and leave your current home the new life is never really yours You can't live in Hawaii and live here in Rockingham County or whatever county you live in close by at the same time. Well, let me tell you, far too many people 
approach Christianity like that. They love the idea of eternal life. They love the idea of escaping hell. They love the idea of having Jesus as their own personal assistant or as their superhero whom they can call on in their moment of distress. But they're not willing to leave the life that they have now. Their desires, their lifestyles, and their sinful habits are simply too precious for them to simply leave it all behind to take the offer that's been extended to them. The cost is too great for them, they think, to give these things up. Sure, they might change something about their lives. They might start going to church or they might give up some sinful habit. But they want to retain ownership of everything else. They're living in the brochure, not in the mansion. Because they're not willing to get rid of everything else and to make the move that the free offer requires. And friends, too many of us have made discipleship out to be something that is easy. We champion our air-conditioned, cushioned, entertaining religion as though that alone is authentic faith. But nobody who received the free gift of faith in the Bible ever had it so easy. And you may say, well, okay, so the discipleship is costly. Why would I want to pay that cost? That sounds scary. And to that I'll say, don't be scared when I tell you that discipleship is costly. Because listen, discipleship costs, but it is well worth the cost. As one who's given my life to Christ, I can tell you that Jesus is worthy of far more than anything I've ever given up for him. So don't settle for cheap substitutes because Jesus makes it clear in these verses that cheap discipleship, Christianity that does not cost, is of no value. And so we look at the cost of discipleship. And as we look at the costs associated with discipleship here in these verses, each of us should really consider two questions, two kind of overarching questions that will lead us into a series of other questions to examine ourselves. But here are the overarching questions. The first one would be, am I really a disciple of Jesus or am I deceiving myself? That's a question of diagnosis. Could you truly diagnose yourself from the qualifications laid out here by Jesus as a true follower of Jesus? And the second question is kind of conditional on that first one. So if the diagnosis reveals that there's something wrong, if you find the reality that you truly are not a disciple of Christ, then the second kind of conditional question to that first one is this. If I'm not really a disciple of Jesus, am I willing to pay the cost of becoming one? That's the question of your willingness to count the cost. And as you think of these kind of overarching questions, now I'm going to guide you through this passage into four questions that will help you diagnose your discipleship and to count the cost of following Jesus. Here's the first of these. Are you willing to give up your family? That sounds tough, doesn't it? But are you willing to give up your family? When Jesus turns to the crowds that are following him, he must have shocked their sandals off with the statement that he makes in verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. 
I mean, there's one particular word in this statement that just kind of jumps out of the Bible page and slaps us in the jaw, and it's the word hate. I mean, Amy and I teach our kids not to hate people. They, they can hate situations, but the moment they begin to start speaking about hating a particular individual, we correct them, and we say that while we may disagree with certain individuals, they still bear God's image. They are still worthy of our love. That's consistent with what Jesus teaches elsewhere. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in Matthew five forty four. So what are we to think now about Jesus telling us to hate our parents and our spouses and our children and our siblings here in Luke chapter 14? Doesn't the fifth commandment to honor our mother and our father still hold in Jesus' eyes? Didn't Jesus rebuke the Pharisees for their unwillingness to honor their mothers and their fathers by their own selfishness, saying that they were giving things to God that ultimately should have been given to their ailing parents? Wouldn't hating our immediate family members in a way such as that desired their, instru- their destruction? Wouldn't desiring the destruction of our own family members negate what Jesus commanded back in Luke chapter 10 in what we call the great commandment? That we should love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, all of this is true. And this should be an instructive lesson for all of you and how you, can, how you can study your Bibles. Because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. When one verse appears to contradict another, we know that there is no contradiction in God. He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. So other passages of Scripture can help us to, to shed light on and to draw out the true meaning of the passage that we're trying to interpret. And here's what Jesus is doing in this verse. He's using a a, a literary sort of technique, or it could be a a technique that's used when you're making a a vocal argument, known as hyperbole. It's a technique of stating something in its extreme in order to shock or capture the attention and drive home the meaning. Jesus is not contradicting the commands to honor your parents or to love your wives and your children or to love your neighbors. He's simply driving home the priority that he must be given if he is going to be the Lord of one who wants to be his disciple. Because a disciple is an individual who has resolved to love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. And as we seek to interpret Scripture with Scripture, we find Jesus said something very similar over in Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 10. That's where he says, beginning verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And yet he says this in verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
So the idea of hating your family, if that's something that seemed enticing to you, let me rain on your parade for just a moment, okay? By saying that Jesus doesn't want you to alienate your family members. He doesn't want you to seek to destroy your earthly relationships, but he wants you to bring them all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He wants you to give them up to him so that he can manage them. And that may mean that you need to relinquish a grudge that you're holding against one of your family members. That may mean if you're a wife that you need to move along with what God's commanded to you in gathering together with other Christians though your husband may say, oh, I would rather go to breakfast today. For some of you who've grown up in non-Christian homes or homes that were committed to deceived doctrines it may mean that you must be willing to face the regrets of your family it may even mean that you must face the disowning of your own family and from an outsider's perspective it's going to look like you hate your family but here's the reality putting jesus first making sure that you are more devoted to jesus than you are to your immediate family is the best way that you can love your immediate family you'll love them better because you will know the author of love and you will give as good things have been given to you you'll be more likely to love them toward eternal life than you would be otherwise And so I ask you, are you willing to give up your family? That's the first question to help you diagnose the discipleship and count the cost of following Jesus. Here's the second one. Are you willing to give up your fanfare? Jesus wasn't after fanfare. I mean, as this passage kicks off, he's got the situation that most preachers would love to have, okay? Large crowds were going along with him. They wanted to be a part of the Jesus fan club and oh jesus you know he could have just kept performing miracles he could have just been kept speaking of grace and that crowd would have grown more and more but jesus doesn't want fans jesus wants disciples he doesn't want those who just stay by because it's the cool thing to do he doesn't want those who are only interested in what they can get out of the equation He doesn't want those who are only gathering together for the entertainment value of what's happening. Jesus wants sold-out disciples who will go where he sins and do what he commands. And Jesus wooed individuals to the gospel. But Jesus didn't just woo, he also winnowed. He winnowed out those who were not interested in having him as their Lord. Yes, Jesus wooed and he winnowed. But I'm afraid that one of the greatest issues in the modern church is that we now consistently woo, but we rarely winnow. We allow sin to run rampant in the assembly. We see individuals doing things that we know that God commands them not to do, and we just sit idly by. We don't want to disrupt the growth of the crowd. And in this so-called enlightened culture of ours, we're tempted to bend the truth so that we won't hurt the feelings of the crowd. But hear me on this. Jesus never let the crowd control the truth. And neither should we. We must not let 
the bad morals of a broken world hinder our resolve to proclaim without apology the word of God revealed for all ages. Because listen to me, we would be far better off with two rows of an auditorium full of half-hearted followers of Jesus than we would be with a whole auditorium filled with those who are not committed to him. To have those who would be sold out to Christ would be so much better, even if they are small in number, than to have a, a, a streaming service, to have a parking lot full, to have multiple gatherings here in this place where people are just packed to the brim with something less than true Christianity. Because here's what's going to happen with those who are not completely sold out to Christ. Fair weather Christians will depart when the weather gets rough. And they'll see that things are no longer favorable. They see that the entertainment's no longer what they wanted it to be. They'll see that the fan club and the nice popular gathering is not what they had once experienced and found to be the thrill of their souls. And so they will trickle away. Those who are sold out to Christ will allow no such thing to happen. Because if the entertainment isn't what it used to be, if, if the worship gathering doesn't tickle their emotions the way that it once did, still they know that Jesus is on his throne. He is ruling and reigning and just as faithful today as he's ever been. And so they will gladly march forward with the cause of the gospel for the sake of the name of the one who has saved them. That's the kind of people that the church needs. That's the kind of people that Jesus deserves. Because, my friends, he's paid the ultimate price. He's won the ultimate victory. And Jesus makes it clear at the end of verse 26 that even our own lives, our own desires, our own ambitions must be laid in the dust in comparison with our love for Jesus. As he said in John 12, 25, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. And so I ask, are you willing to give up your fanfare? That's the second question to help you diagnose your discipleship and account the cost of following Jesus. Here's the third. Are you willing to give up your freedom? Oh, now that's going to be a tough blow for us here in America because we're constantly celebrating the freedom that we have to do whatever we would like. Let me say whatever I want to say. Let me do whatever I want to do. But if we lived in the world that Jesus lived in here as he proclaims these words, I believe verse 27 would be the most shocking of all the statements, even though there are so many shocking things that he says here in this passage. But he explains the high cost of discipleship with something that would be totally shocking to his audience in that day. For Jesus says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In Jesus' day, you see, the cross was not just a piece of jewelry. It wasn't just a church decoration. Furthermore, the cross was not just an instrument of irritation or inconvenience. The cross was a tool of slow, tortuous death. And Jesus commands his followers to take up their cross daily. Take up your slow, torturous death daily, he says. And nothing less could be considered discipleship. Jesus is describing for us the cost of daily death to our selfish desires. 
Marching to execution on the cross was a matter of bearing shame. And Jesus is calling for true disciples who are willing to bear the shame for his name's sake. So what if the world says you're backwards? So what if the world says you're on the wrong side of history? Are you willing to bear the shame? Are you willing to bear the reproach by taking up the cross and saying, the one who has saved me is worthy of it all? Furthermore, since our Savior suffered the rejection and the agony of the cross, if we follow after Him, then we should be prepared for suffering, rejection, and agony if His will directs it. And daily crucifixion, daily dying to ourselves is a process that none of us will perfect, okay? If you're looking for someone who's perfected the idea of dying daily, you're not going to find it this side of glory. We will blow it. Be sure of that. But when we blow it, we must confess it to the Lord and seek to be obedient the next time that he gives us an opportunity to suffer for him. But hear me on this. If you are not involved in the process of carrying your cross daily through death to yourself, then you're not on the path of discipleship that Christ calls us to be. But there's good news, friends. Because the cross that we bear for him has had its ultimate penalty removed. I mean, the greatest of all shames, the greatest of all enmities has been borne by Christ himself. He has borne the wrath of the cross. When we carry the cross, we carry it after one who has conquered the grave. And so, friends, we carry the cross to eternal life, whereas Christ carried the cross to death on our behalf. The sting of death has been conquered. So listen, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that should be the last personal, private decision that you should ever strive to make. That should be the last self-oriented sort of decision that you would ever make when you decide to come to Christ. Because from then on, the question that every Christian's lips ought to resound is this, Jesus, what do you want me to do? I am dead to my own will. I am asking you where, what you want me to do. Where do you want me to go? And so I ask you, is there some decision in your life that you're battling with, but you've left Christ out of the equation? Could this be an opportunity to reorient your heart, to reorient your life, to say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Yes, are you willing to give up your freedom? Here's the final question. Are you willing to give up your finances? Oh, now here's another one that's tough for us as Americans. Jesus says in verse 33, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Whoa, now that's a shocking statement, is it not? Doesn't that step all over our American toes, does it not? None of you. He, I mean, he doesn't just say like, you know, but, but certain ones of you need to give it all. He says, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Now, it's interesting and important for us to note here that Jesus doesn't command us to give away. He doesn't command us to give over to the government or to the church. He doesn't command us to give these things over or away. He tells us to give them up. He says, give up his own possessions. You see, 
disciples are giving up the things that they belong to say, Jesus, what I have is yours. If you've got some intent to use it for some purpose, then you use it. It's yours. That's a matter of giving up and not giving away. Do you understand the difference there? Now, Jesus may very well command you to give those things away. If you give it up to him, you say, Jesus, if you want me to give it away, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to pursue your will. I'm going to follow what you command me to do. And one of, the, one of the truest tests of faithful discipleship that we can find is, a, is an individual's willingness to let go of their finances in order to pursue the kingdom. Are you giving the way God commands? Are you giving a tithe of what he would command you to give to the church? If you've given up all your possessions, then hey, you want to take a tenth of it and give it to the church? By all means, it's yours. My house becomes his house. My car becomes his car. My savings become his savings. Somebody backs into my car and said, hey, you just backed into Jesus' car. He might be upset with you, but I'm okay. I mean, that's the sort of mentality we ought to have. It all belongs to him if we have pursued him, if he is our Lord. It's all his. And he'll take care of it. He'll take care of it. I mean, he is a good and faithful Savior. And he will do well with what you entrust to him. This is a tough renunciation. It's a costly call for those of us who love the stuff of this world. And Jesus doesn't just say, you know, like, give some of what you have to me. He he doesn't just say, you know, kind of walk away from some of those habits of yours or or take some of your property and dedicate that to say, "This this is, Jesus, you can use that, whatever you want to. Just let me hold on to this and enjoy this. No, he says, all, whoever does not give up all of his own possessions cannot follow me jesus says and so here's a good exercise for you to do just just go home or maybe even before you go home go out walk out to your car and say to your car car you don't own me jesus owns me walk into your walk into your home and just look around at the things that maybe you're so pride up prideful of the things that you're proud of and say look you don't own me jesus owns me So Jesus calls for me to give you away. If Jesus calls for me to to, to put you in the dust, then I'm going to pursue what Jesus calls me to do. Because listen, if Jesus doesn't possess your possessions, then they will possess you. That's what he says ultimately in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, he says. Last big idea I want you to take hold of here today is this. Following Jesus costs more than everything except not following him. Following Jesus costs more than anything except not following him. Jesus is unashamed and unafraid of telling us the things that others would hide away in the fine print. The worst of the things that might be the cost of following him as a Christian. He he reveals to us that we must ultimately hate our families in relationship to him. He reveals to us that we must carry our cross to execution daily. He, He tells us that we must renounce our possessions, giving them up to his control. There's no small print in the covenant of grace. It's all big and bold. No cheap grace. It's all costly. 
And so he says, come and be my disciple. But there is one who works against us. There is one who holds things in the fine print. There is a deceiver. There is Satan who keeps things hidden in the fine print that needs the magnifying glass on the back page. On the front page, in big, bold letters are the words, you surely will not die, as we read in Genesis 3, 4. And then as, as Jesus encountered in Matthew 4, 9, Satan says, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. But there on the back page, there in the small print, so that you can only read it with a magnifying glass, it says, and after all the fleeting pleasures, you will suffer with me in hell forever why is jesus willing to show us the worst of discipleship as well as the best of what he has to offer us while satan only shows us his best well here's the reason satan shows us the best and hides the worst because his best will not overcome the worst but jesus's best will far overcome the worst of discipleship that the benefits of the gospel will far overwhelm the costs of discipleship. Jesus promises us this glorious resurrection where all the losses of your life will be repaid. He tells us that he will help us to endure the hardships. He also tells us that he will give us his Holy Spirit to be with us as we go through them. He promises that even if we are killed for the kingdom, not a hair on your head will perish. Which means that when we sit down, when we calculate the cost of following Jesus, when we weigh the worst and the best, if you give it a true examination, you're going to find that Jesus is worthy of it all. And so now comes the moment of examination. Is God prodding around in your heart? But like, are you really taking the moment to take inventory of your own life and say, am I truly a disciple of Jesus? Have I truly owned up to the cost? Have I counted the cost? Have I taken ownership of the cost? Am I living in such a way that you could diagnose me as a Christian based on what Christ calls for me here? Now, if we're honest, all of us fall short in this from time to time. But Jesus is worthy of our correcting. Jesus is worthy of our pursuit. And if you've taken hold of some sort of hollow gospel that just had a cheap veneer of eternal life without the costly call of discipleship that went along with it, friends, don't settle for cheap alternatives. Don't remain with that which will not endure to eternal life. Give your heart to Jesus. Yield your life to him. All my dreams, all my plans, all my family, it's all in your hands, Lord Jesus. Is that the prayer of your heart? Then I have good news, my friends, because he will shepherd you well. He is the good shepherd. Whatever is entrusted to him will be in good hands. And so, if the prayer of your heart is to pursue Jesus with the costly discipleship that he demands, and you can rejoice, friends, that the high cost that you are paying is in the hands of one who will reward you so much more than you'll ever pay. And so would you bow with me in these final 
moments of reflection here. God, you know my own heart. You know the heart of all those who are gathered here. God, you know how we're prone to look for the cheap alternatives. You, you know how we're prone to look for the good deal. It so often ends up being a hollow deal. God, I just want to pray that if there are those who are gathered here today who have taken a cheap, less than costly sort of alternative of your gospel, who have comprehended and thought that they were in a right state with you, though they've never paid any price, though they've never given of themselves in such a way that would pursue you as the Lord over all, that, Lord, you would just break down the barriers of an understanding of a false gospel to help individuals to understand that we serve with a costly discipleship because we have a Savior who has given a costly life for us. Father, just pray you'd help us to comprehend the weight of the gospel, that the God who owned everything, the God who had all power and all authority, your own Son, bore the wrath, took on flesh, faced the consequences of humanity, was mocked and shamed, had nails drawn into his hands and his feet so that we might have life. God, that is so costly. And what it provides for us in Christ's resurrection is so awesome, so much more abundant than we could ever earn if we were to hold on to these things to ourselves, if we were to attain all the things that the world offers. Lord, you know that it wouldn't be enough to compare with what you prepared for us in glory. So God, don't let us settle for the cheap substitutes. Cause us, O Lord, to smell the sweet aroma of the gospel and to be willing to give it all that we might find the one who has offered it all to us in our pursuit of you. Father, if there's a need that needs to be met, if there's a heart that needs to be turned, if there is a a soul that needs to be saved here today, God, speak your words of grace into the lives of those who need to follow you. And may we together, O Lord, respond to this call. May we Together, O Lord, take inventory. May we together count the costs. And may we together, O Lord, grow into the church that you've called us to be for your glory and your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll close with a final invitation. If the Lord's calling you to respond, if the Lord is calling you